Welcome to the second episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. Uh, I'm Preston. And today we are reading an interview of John Cage's from the collection Hatred of Capitalism, a Semiotext Reader, which we will probably return to once or twice more, at least. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a few in here I definitely want to dive into. Yeah, and this collection has a lot of great continental thinkers. It's got Guattari, and it's got Foucault, and it has a lot of more informal work, and it really is not this essay, or not this interview, but a lot of it is basically not about a hatred of capitalism, but it's about terrorism. Oh, yes. Uh, which Cage does not speak about very much, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you might, you might consider him a musical terrorist. He could be a musical terrorist of sorts in the right uh, in the right context, I think. I feel like his music is great and not terroristic. <laughs> and then when he talks about it, <laughs> I feel a little bit unsure of what we're doing. <laughs> so oh, that's a great way to put it. So what would you say his main point is in this interview titled For the Birds? Oh. So at least for me, one of the things I took from it that I really enjoyed was um, his uh, attempt to dismantle, you know, or disillusion us from, like, previous structures of what we accept as music. And, you know, I think it's, uh, he's, he's pushing us to listen to things in a different way mm -hmm. and kind of breaking us out of this... Uh, you know, often, you know, two-sided relationship we often have in music between, you know, tension resolution, um, you know, does this stuff go with these things? And I think he is uh, attempting to strip it all back to, uh, I don't know what I would... To reality. Well, yes, exactly. He says exactly. reality, to the sounds of reality. Yes, so, birds so any any sound for him can be music and and john cage as a composer is famous for a lot of music um depending on who you talk to um probably for people outside of the world of music composition his most famous piece is four minutes and 33 seconds which involves uh, a piano player going up to a piano and uh not playing the piano and the music is the sounds of the hall um, and so often it's mislabeled a piece of silence, but really there's no sound from the piano, mm. but there's the idea is that you listen to the sounds of the hall, whatever they may be in that given time. The growing discomfort of the audience waiting for the piece to start. A climax of old people <laughs> coughing. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, um, but yeah. To put it in Lacanian terms, I would say that Cage is attempting to eliminate the symbolic in music. Does he succeed? <sighs> I, I don't know. Because he, def he definitely dances around it a lot, Yes, right? absolutely. But I, uh, I don't know. I think even with, like, his approach to chance music, there is still, you know, he's creating some sort of a pedagogy out of that, right? Like, there's... There's a structure. Yes. Yeah, um, there's, there's a way of looking at the music. So one of the pieces discussed in this interview is Atlas Ecliptocallus, which takes 
uh, star charts, so like positions of, of stars and sort of using, I think, if I remember right, some chance operations to then translate. I'm going to use that word and not use the word. He uses the I Ching with this one. He uses the I Ching, yeah. Which, uh, for those, again, who don't know, he uh, Cage is the king of the dice roll. He would roll and use chance operations to remove artistic intentionality as much as possible from the creation of uh, the work. I mean, I don't think he'd like the word work, but mm. I'm going to call he it a work. Does <laughs> does he does say his, work? Okay. I think one of my favorite little uh, things that I was like, hmm, interesting, like right off the bat, is when he's talking about the fatality back to sounds in the musical sense he does put it in quotations i think that's how he's hedging here mm. um in you know that noises must go with certain noises and not with others but he still refers to his own works as music even in this own piece well, i think this, well, i like, think he's trying to expand essay. what music is right i think that hence the like, uh the, our quotations around musical there i think was his you know kind of hedging around that yeah but when i first read it i was kind of like wait but don't you write mu music? Don't you still call, like, your works music? Well, I think in that place, what he means musical is, like, lyrical. Like, a violin playing a mournful tune. Or, the, or just like common the common, Yeah, the common term of yeah. what we would refer to as music. Which is going to also refer to, like, traditional notions of what is beautiful and not what is just there. And I think I think whenever Cage says reality, I, I, get, I have problems. So I just have, like in my head been reading it as whatever is there like traffic sounds are there bird sounds are there whatever whatever is there is what he's referring to sounds in reality it just it's just the everyday noises and he's saying they can be music and i i think that's great i that's i have no issue with that and i think it's almost a precondition of anything i do as a composer that cage has successfully broadened what we can do and call music in the art world right that's it it's why like uh i definitely can see some stuff in there i'm like oh yeah definitely some parallels with chris's composition and like music writing but at the same time not even close well okay so full disclosure for for anyone listening uh my music um w one could say that if it favors any registers it would be like imaginary symbolic like first imaginary i work under fictional heteronyms so like fictional identities that i create and then put them in relationship with each other which creates a sort of language and so for me the imaginary and the symbolic are still the drivers for cage it's the real mm. the real which for him is just reality, I think. I don't think there's any, like, traumatic element of it. I think it's just what's there. Yes. Yeah, it's not like, um... Which might be actually a thing we haven't talked about that could be a critique of Cage. Is, Ooh. you know, like, the sounds that are there to him are often, like, nature and human life sounds. But mm. they're not, like, the sounds of assault. Or... Oh. Which are also just there. Oh! <laughs> or, like... Especially with him, Bugs like... eating corpses, yeah, or I don't know, like, all of that's pretty there. An interview <laughs> you know? that I watched with him talking mm -hmm. about, like, you know, these kind of concepts, and he's talking about, like, listening to the sounds of New York, and obviously, I think 
it's like like the sound of driving, you know, steel. Yeah, you're talking about the Bronco interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great interview. Um but, you know, I I don't think he was really thinking about like the homeless guy screaming profanity at people as they pass by or the person getting stabbed in the alley or which, body being thrown into river <laughs> which like would be more in line with like an idea of the traumatic real, yeah right like the idea of these things erupting that break our symbolic environment which does like there's sort of a thing with 433 where so the experience of the piece 433 is if you're a layperson in the hall and you don't already know what you're supposed to be doing you said it exactly right right like you will be waiting for things to start like you still need some bare minimum language tool <laughs> to get the thing going right like <laughs> so do you think that cage would prefer an audience that has never heard of the piece or a mixture of people familiar with his work and people who aren't like what do you think would like give you more of the real sounds because yeah. I, I think that we like if there were a room full of people who've been to school and have you know studied this piece if everybody in there has heard that aren't they kind of already dismantling something he's aiming for because we know we're part of the performance and yeah. it kind of undercuts a bit of the random aspect there doesn't it I think it does, but I also think that, like, I wonder if that's partially why, like, <laughs> I mean, this is totally a shot in the dark, but why he talks so much. You know, he's get lectures and interviews, and, I mean, he's not a, my work speaks for itself. Like, I don't think he anywhere says that his work speaks for itself. I don't think I... In this interview, at least. Has he ever said that? It'd be a strange thing for John Cage to say. I think it'd be amazing, though. I think it'd be more... something. If he just goes, my work speaks for itself, and then you have this mystery around the piece 433 where people have to decide if it's silence. Ooh. But I, then I actually think, like, I've always been taught the experience of listening to it based on Cage's interviews. If this man had said nothing about this piece and just presented 433 would we then in music school be taught it's a piece of silence? If he hadn't said a lot, Ooh. you know, if his whole position is about expanding what is music, I don't know. Oof. That's a good point. Um, but, uh, maybe we should talk about these experimental situations since we've been kind of talking about one of his there. His, uh, you know, uh, let me see how he puts this that I liked it. So, rather than, you know, going into his musical sense of the world and getting rid of uh, Soufflage. Soufflage, uh, yeah. Um, he is attempting the opposite, not the repetition of some overly common, almost habitual situation that would remain unchanged without our feeling the need to intervene which I kind of disagree with. Even with stuff that's kind of muscle memory, I still feel like I have to intervene on it. Could Isn't be. Isn't that kind of a bit of improv? I don't know. Anyways, be, yeah. but an entirely novel situation in which any sound or noise might occur with or near any other experimental situation. Right? Yeah. So, 
he also, the interviewer asks him if it's a situation of anarchy, and he would agree with that. But is it anarchy? Well, I think, I think, I mean, obviously, my guess is that Cage would hate psychoanalysis, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know if he ever spoke about it, but there is this aspect in psychoanalysis that meaning is always retroactive after the fact. So like you could have any structure of any kind and it's actually really hard to defeat meaning, even if that meaning is random. Mm. You know, we always, not always, but we always after the fact try to try to usher in a meaning to, to a piece of music, even if its incoherence is meant to be on that level, I guess, incoherence as such. Mm. And I wonder if, I mean, he was an anarchist. I think he said he was an anarchist. I mean, I mean, the next line, the best government is that which governs least from Jefferson. He says that governs, that government is best, which governs not at all. Um, (laughs) Which I had a little thing. So uh, does that mean the best artist is one that doesn't art at all? Or doesn't ego at all? Like, okay, again, like, I feel really weird because I'm bringing in terms that I don't think he'd like. But maybe, maybe he'd, he, I think he'd like the idea of trying to get rid of your, or at least, like, not care about your mm. ego. So, right? better yet, like, with that little quote, the best artist is one that doesn't art at all. Yeah. Would you say that that is one that doesn't fall into the patterns of what an artist is supposed to do? how you're supposed to live like how the like general pop culture portrays these roles would that be a little bit more or yeah i mean better I think, yet not even just pop culture but yeah. even like your your school of thought i mean yeah jazz is a great example of like those arguments of whether or not it's jazz but you know miles davis did a lot of experimental stuff that people are like he hasn't been a jazz artist since you know x year which i don't know i'm kind of on the side that he always was and kind of stuck to the idea of like pushing boundaries within that genre but you know if we were to change that over to like artists there i guess that would be a little bit more of an apt description that would fit with the way he thinks is just not to do it the way it's been done before? I mean, I think that's a precondition for anything else we're going to do. I think you're right. But I think there's more. So he writes on the next page, page 163, he says, I am well aware that things interpenetrate, but I think that they interpenetrate more richly and with a greater complexity when I don't establish any relation. Mm. So I think I think the side of complexity, and I guess aesthetic for him aesthetic satisfaction like what makes what his desire as a listener is is on the side of the real Mm. there is i don't want to use the phrase the real is on the side of reality like what objects present themselves to us are and that's sort of true on a literal level like if you look at the rhythms of traffic it's much more complicated than the rhythms of a song (laughs) but do you There's think a problem at some there, point I think. there would be a like a pattern that could emerge anywhere? Oh, I think that, that we've you established would call a, like rhythm. 
Oh, I think that there's rhythm anywhere. There's that. Whether or not... I mean, if you're defining rhythm as something that we can get onto, I think that in the case of traffic, traffic is infinitely more complicated than if I put traffic to a 4-4 four, four beat, because then it makes it sound like all of traffic is in relationship to 4-4. Four, four. Oh, oh. Whereas if there's no time, I think his gambit here is that we can hear traffic as complicated. Mm. As satisfying sounds that are just in their own world with their own sense of relationships. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm using the, he doesn't like the word relationships. They, they what's the word he did? Like interpenetrate far greater than he thinks, I guess a song would so is he a, saying that like by eliminating the relationship that it's like a more authentic experience of the sound itself maybe authentic isn't the right word but more, maybe more real yes yeah. like it's it's more you know directly related to your experience with it and not one that has been framed in a way you're supposed to to experience it does that make sense yeah i think i think that's where he's going and i think where i think this is also where my resistances show up because i think that <laughs> maybe this is like to him outdated but i think that that like the symbolic layer is more complicated than the real <laughs> Ooh. Or, or maybe not. Maybe I'm not sure what I think on this, but there's this idea that human relations in music, interplay of voices and, you know, the, just the construction of any music is rich than the fact that we can get onto it. And so even if on the literal level, the sounds of traffic on its own are more complicated, I think what Cage would want to say is that once you stop signifying traffic for that sound, you can, you can hear a lot more in there nature has more sounds when you get rid of the word traffic i actually really wish he said it that way mm. I, I think that that's almost nature has more sounds when you get rid of nature well yeah like... <laughs> 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 there's a there's a great youtube video of zizek standing in like a in like um a dumpster not he's not in a dumpster sorry he's standing on like a landfill and okay, now I want that to be our cover photo. Is like the land photoshopped uh, Zizek standing in a dumpster. Yeah, and he says. <laughs> but yeah, he says like we should consider this our nature, our natural condition. He says something to the effect that like when we picture nature, we should picture this is what nature is, and not you know like a 19th century landscape painting or these lovely mountains around us. I guess. I mean, it's it's kind of a good point. I mean, it's so post COVID. There has been an explosion of people camping. Like, yeah. blew up lately. It's why, like, the, the state parks are just overrun now. And so a lot, of, a lot of places that you used to just be able to camp in BLM land, mm -hmm. because of, like, people just not respecting the area they're in and treating it like everywhere else. Yeah. You know, a lot of landowners and people who have animals that graze on that kind of stuff complained. And so now there's a lot of areas they don't even let you camp on BLM land anymore because people are bringing their nature out into nature. 
if you will. Yeah, well, there's... There's an interesting thing in here on, on what you're saying with, with Cage, where I think he... I wonder if he still thinks about a binary between I, human versus nature. Ooh. I mean, he makes a lot of points where he's, like, trying to break away from the binary. Yeah. But that's a... That's an interesting thing. I would I would be interested to see what he thought of nature versus man. Yeah, and I guess, like, in my work, I don't really consider it in the way that he considers it. Um, and I, I like, I like a lot of the, I, I think that the thinking of his thought as reality has more to offer than what he would want, what he could do as a, a composer with his, getting his hands dirty in there. I, I like that a lot, and it opens up a lot of fields of music. Like, there's a lot of eco-music, of music that's uh, recordings out in, in landscapes and urban recordings. Um, I still think that, in general, I've made this critique with a lot of composers, including John Luther Adams and a lot of other eco-music, is that if we want to go back to nature, that the sounds of assault and bugs squirming have to be equal on the oh. level of <laughs> babbling brooks and, and and I think I think there's there's a great piece called Redbird by Trevor not Trevor Noah Trevor Wishart and um, it's sound it's a it's a prisoner's dream and it starts off with the sound of him screaming and the scream becomes birds and I think like that's a nature I can get behind, mm. and then like at one point the sound of dogs barking become the sounds of armies fighting, oh. and like that's nature. Just my like if, if you, I mean obviously this word is way too big for just like my associations, but like it seems like that includes more, and it's like I think Cage, in a lot of ways, opens the door for that. So I don't want to harp on him too much for what he decides, you know, the stars. Um, I'm trying to think if he has really aggro pieces and I wonder if that might be where his ego or his style gets in there is a lot of his music is not very aggressive in that way there, there is a lot that's aggressive um, past the constructions but I do think he tends to favor in my opinion beautiful sounds for himself Mm. and quiet um, I might disagree with that later but I, I think that he does favor some notions like meditation music like long drawn out quiet mm. especially in the number pieces later in life whereas like isn't a bumblebee just as a part of nature which is like a two second grindcore piece yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> and then like dies or something maybe that's just Maybe that's a little bit of nitpicking, though. Maybe that's not really a real complaint. Maybe that's more just a style consideration. Yeah. Um, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, though, because say what you will about John Cage, but he definitely gets you to talk and think about what music is. Yes. So one of them that, like, my association with him had always been more like, you know, noise-related deconstruction of you know, previous structures and that kind of stuff. But one little thing that he put in here 
As I've said before, it would be just as worthwhile to express a musical idea with lights. So, just lights? That's on 162. What makes sounds abstract, quote unquote, is when listening to. Li oh my gosh, I'm sorry. What makes sounds quote-unquote abstract is when, instead of listening to them for themselves, we're content to listen to their relations. It's a good point. As I've said before, it would be just as worthwhile to express a musical idea with lights. Well, that's, that's, he's, I think, I think he's against the lights. I think he's saying that that would be, well, not against the lights, but I think he's saying that. Oh! That that's the real, uh. like, that we're putting some, that's the structure that gets in thrown in there. oh okay you know like you could do happy birthday with lights and you would say that's happy birthday so it'd be like the end of close encounters of the third kind just on mute with them talking to the aliens with just the lights yeah and then like an alien goes i just love that part <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful that always reminds me of my first love or something. <laughs> <laughs> I have fond memories of that sound. <laughs> and then and then and then in that world, or in a true inversion, Cage would say, you know, we can appreciate these lights as just colors. <laughs> in nature, we don't need this music. <laughs> we can just have the lights without any meaning. And appreciate the lights for themselves. And then someone goes, no, I, I, it's my first love, and you're trying to kill my association, or whatever. Oh, that, that's pretty good. I like that. Okay, so obviously there was one thing. Preston and I have, full disclosure, talked a little bit about this essay. I will say that for all the stuff I've said positive, I think that John Cage doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk about it. There's... I, question. I can't help but think that the logos, that logic, has very little hold in this world as you define it. Cage. That's because I'm not a Greek philosopher. We, And then he says something nice, like, we used to seek out the logical experiences, nothing mattered more than stability. A little dubious to me. I'm not really sure if I agree with that. Today, besides stability, we allow for instability. We have come to desire the experience of what is. Um... I don't know. That's so close to like late capitalist ideological selling the experience of what is to you. Like you desire what is <laughs> come to Fallujah or something. I don't know. Um, but this what is is neither stable nor unchanging. At any rate, we understand better that we bring the logic with us. What I think well, that's just one moment where I think that Cage doesn't want to talk about it. What I mean is that I, I think he wants to get on to his own line of thinking and doesn't want to answer the questions. <laughs> so I... He doesn't want to talk about it. It's like the room. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I do kind of like the uh, the little quote that he puts in here, the, the gee story, which mm -hmm. at first I was like, what? But it kind of put me on a thought process I thought was kind of interesting with yeah. him like eliminating association. But he's asked, could you explain your idea of time? How does it cohere with your idea of future, a world of influx? A Zen monk went out with one of his disciples and saw a flock of wild geese. 
What's that? he asked. It was wild geese, one answered. The master violently tweaked his disciple's nose. You imagine that they have passed, but they were always here. Thus, the disciple was enlightened. So, yeah, it's it's a little wooey. But it's fine. I mean, it's good. You know. So it's it, good. It's, it got it's, me on this thought process of like, you know, time's a human construct, man. But you know, maybe Cage is not even thinking about his music linearly like we listen to music. Oh, I would I would say that he's certainly not. He's letting things come and go as they happen as his listening position. Like his position is sort of a watcher of a river, I guess. Or a watcher of, of sounds as they pass and letting them pass and letting things go. Mm. Isn't that a great there's something about forgetfulness later on, right? Where he says We Each time we establish a relation, each time we connect two terms, we forget that we have to return to zero before moving to the next term. We forget that each time to pass from one word to the next, we must return to zero. Which is definitely like like the undergrad's version of shaking someone while they're high and going, Don't you know we're floating on a rock in space? <laughs> so it's funny. <laughs> So, I mean, back to your point, though, I mean, about um, time, he basically says, I don't know about the parable, right? He says, we must not hypnotize ourselves with intellectual categories, such as continuous, discontinuous, blah, 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 which we imagine will enable us to conceive time. So mm -hmm. he basically, I now, so it's interesting, in our sense of the word, then the Lacanian real would be time. <laughs> Oh. Right, because like that's what, that's that's that sort of we can't fixed quite, point yeah. that you can't. Um, it's, it's always there. It's always we just there. Can't quite pin it down. We can't represent it. Mm. It's what's not representable. I also think that um, he still doesn't want to talk about it though. Like that's a great. I mean, it's a nice parable, but he doesn't really say a oh, lot about there's it. There's no expansion upon that at all. Yeah, because, like, there's a lot of ways that you or I would go with that parable. Like, one obvious one that would be boring and probably not where I'd wind up is, like, it's because you have the, the image previous Ooh. to the geese so that you can then point them out and the image is in your head before you see the flock of geese. Mm. So, but and they were always here. And then there's the more literal way, which is, like, past and future human constructs or whatever which I, I mean I'm just going to let you know right now I have really no idea how to talk about that <laughs> I don't know I don't know I've never thought about it and no I clue. I just don't and then, and then I would agree with Cage right like like which we imagine will enable us to conceive time what what is why does he think that nothing is further from life than the philosophies of life is he um, is it is he then saying we're doing some system thing that then effaces the real? That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, is like when we attempt to categorize, and you know, do as we tend to do when we study things, then it's kind of 
you know, in opposition to life itself, which is ever-changing, chaotic, unpredictable, all that kind of fun stuff. Sort of, except for it's not, in a certain sense. Uh, there's a lot of regularity to certain... Again, like, I mean, I, I maybe I'm just being too nitpicky here, but, like, when we... That's not what I get from philosophies of life. I'm assuming he doesn't mean philosophies of life like Henri Bergson or someone with a with a philosophical take on reality in the field of philosophy. I'm assuming he means I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a blank, I'm a blank. Mm. And I guess he chose I guess Buddhism chose him because he it seems like he views that as one of the more open, closer to reality standpoints i guess well i mean i i think buddhism often doesn't like to refer to itself as like a religion though yeah so would it really refer to itself as a philosophy like is that an unfair inclusion of mine to throw buddhism as a philosophy of life i would say buddhism is very much a philosophy of life so then he has a philosophy of life yeah i find that a little a little odd because like contradictory I, I, I maybe feel <laughs> like wouldn't it be like better it if he said it's a very obvious philosophy of life yeah like Taoism may not be a religion but it's definitely a philosophy of life just like Buddhism I don't I don't know it also favors certain types of sounds not always. I mean, he does really well at, you know, a lot of his pieces favor really open sounds. I mean, I got to give him a lot of credit here. I mean, he's not, you know, ignoring the sounds of life. But there is a sense when you're like, well, how much... How much can one handle? Like, I guess, I guess, like, it's funny. His version of reality is something we're immersed in and that we can, like, appreciate and get onto the wavelength of. In some way, I guess, you know, just in the way he's talking about it. But I guess from my background, it's like reality in being unsymbolized fails to speak, I guess, mm. in language. Mm. And so by default, you're speaking for it. And that's great. Like, he does it. Like, you know, he says, like, you can find a lot of systems and stuff in his music but I don't know if yeah even in my pieces one can find logic but that requires will and even willingness and I think willingness is not a bad thing I just guess I have trouble getting onto the wavelength of how he experiences sound mm. it just sounds like he, he likes reality and reality's good and the sounds of reality are good and oh wow, this is way violent and I hate what I'm saying and other people like violins and classical music and they prefer those sounds. Yeah, I, and, that's uh, kind I, that's of the not, way that I, I thought about it. Is, <laughs> I'm like, man, I, I respect you for what you're doing, but hey, uh, maybe that just ain't my thing. I do have to tell you, there was one line in this that like you could hear my eyes roll when I read it. So when he's talking about how do you teach without goals in your music and whatnot? 
Uh, it turns out that many people have come to study with me, but for each one I've tried to discover who he was and what he could do. Result, more often than not, I become the student. Ugh. Oh, you didn't like that? <laughs> I just thought it was a little hammy. It was a little cliche <laughs> yeah. for someone like John Cage, yeah. who has a lot of stuff that is the antithesis of cliche, and I was a little surprised to see such a, uh, like, teacher statement in there. Fair enough. Oh, really? It's the kids who do the teaching for me. I guess I wasn't bothered by that. It, I, it was very neutral made, for me. It made me roll my eyes because it, it just seemed so cliche for someone who... That didn't seem at all in his nature in the way that he does yeah. anything. I think there's a conflict in Cage where there's two types of people at war in Cage in my brain when I'm reading him. And again, I think a lot of people would say that I misunderstand what Cage is saying. And um, I'm almost okay with misunderstanding what he says so that I can about to do what I'm going to do, which is um, on the one hand, I see the figure of the old man of the mountain. Who's like, in nature, the stream is but one drop of water in the universe of streaminess or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, then you hear the water and you're like, oh, and there's a bird and the trees and, oh, yes, let them all flow. It is sound. It's like, uh, it's like freaking book two of Aragon. Uh, where he's what like, what is? He gets the magic powers and he spends 30 minutes looking at ants. In the second book of... I don't think first? I ever read those. Oh, no, okay, never mind. So... That's uh, the one that was written by, like, the the kid, possibly, right? Yeah, Christopher Paolini or something. But, yeah. Okay, so then that's, there's the old man on the mountain, uh, which goes with certain cliched, albeit not very learned notions I have of, like, meditating. I don't, I don't meditate, um, and I don't, you know... Uh, to meditate, I guess I don't want to needle stabbed in my eye which will produce a sound again i'm going to very violent things but nature is very violent for me um i guess but okay so the old man of the mountain who lives with um lives with the trees and and then there's the basically like the pervert and i don't mean that like uh like a person who has like a sexual problem uh, the, i mean it like the the, yeah, like, like a person who there's a, you know, he went into a no smoking sign and stood underneath puffing away smoking very gleefully. <laughs> and I, those two positions seem to form a sort of antagonism that's always at work in him, which is like, the trees flow. And the person goes, oh, yes, like that. And he goes, no, not like that. Stop talking. <laughs> you know, like, I hate you. And, and I have, and then, and then also like his ego, like he's like, you know, he's like a Buddhist and he's going on, but yet he has this incredibly powerful ethos that still leaks through that is not it's very strong and and i think that's kind of antagonistic and it's, it makes it very interesting though to read i just think it's there yeah good point i i i think that's a i mean at least from my experience which is not the deepest with cage i think that's a uh, a good description of at least my experiences with him i had one other thought about language that I wanted to burst on the scene a little here, which is, um, so there's, there's a lot of different types of language. There's descriptive language, you know, we can do rhetorical, we can argue, all these types of things. And then there's, um, 
like divine language or a creative language. The first act of creative language would be Genesis 1, let there be light. And that's like the phrase brings into being the reality. Mm. And I think being in the arts, Cage really favors that type of language. It is because I've spoken it to be. Ooh. That, that it's pretty good I, I, I think that's that that's uh I, I would say that that's uh fits with your you know earlier comment of you know that's why he talks so much he needs it spoken to be he needs it spoken <laughs> to be well, I guess we have a sort of... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, and that's the only way I can make sense of certain statements that I just don't normally like to read. Like, um, we were laughing about one, which is, where was, like, the, the, the numbers games? Like, there's two, and the one, oh, and, then, oh, and then there's okay. five, so was, <laughs> and maybe um, we have seven. <laughs> oh, where was that? Let's see. Ah, you see... I think that he and I don't see eye to eye on the difference between the number two and the number one. While I have always tried to think of the plurality of the number one, for Schaefer, plurality begins with two. And then he goes on over here with, uh, when he's talking about the inner penetrate part. At the end of that, he talks about the, uh, in as much as each one is itself, there is a plurality in the number one. And I just, I, I just like, and, and, and I just, I don't mean to be rude. I just like, if a student wrote that in part of an essay and brought it to me, all I would say was question mark and explain further. Because <laughs> I don't, I, I like, there's so many ways to take it. And I, I don't know if I agree with any of them, but I'd be putting words into his mouth. Like, yes, we hear a single sound and we're not putting it in relation. And two creates the relation. Obviously, that's the simple level he's talking about. But we're always there perceiving a sound, right? Like, there's always, there's always our subjectivity perceiving the sound. So there's yeah. two. But then again, like, I just feel like at that point I'm being a really dumb thinker and just, like, counting things. I mean, at least you know for I mean? me, I was thinking more of, like, the the only... For me, the way I read it is, like, maybe the plurality of one is he's talking about, like, if we eliminate the relationships of sounds to each other, it frees that one sound to be interpreted in far more different ways than its relation. So there's more plurality in one plurality doesn't start at two with the relationship the plurality is in the one i think you're right and that would also line up with when we were talking about traffic and like traffic on its own has more richness before we give it the name traffic and bring mm. it into the human world of because like in like the heideggerian care structure you know it's like oh there's traffic for the people and the people the home and i'm in a home and home for dasein right and like if we're hearing it that way, we're hearing it in a really symbolic fashion. Absolutely. In a really, yeah. like, oh, that's that's the relation of the traffic. So you're going to hear traffic, you're going to say, how is it narratively positioned? I worked with a guy, Thomas DeLeo, who's a great composer, 
and he always he would talk about this in really interesting ways about like really like like artistic creativity is really trying to get past that and for him he just didn't like narrative in music mm. and i think part of that was because you know then the narrative of the traffic is are we going to work or you know you're, you're already mm. in the human life world um and that's again where maybe my music falls on the far extreme because i would love the sounds of traffic to be included in a piece of music as traffic like as traffic in the in the sense that you're coming home from work because then the number of possibilities is graspable by the listener and then then you can you can disturb the expectation Mm. when there's a choice between four or five things you can go and disturb the expectation when there's an infinite plurality of choices i don't have any expectation so i think this you kind of nailed on like the biggest difference between like the things I like to hear in music and the stuff I like to do in my own music with Cage is the relationships necessary because I love the sound of subverting expectations and that's impossible without context you have to have created the expectation and that within itself requires relationships and I feel like that's impossible with Cage's music aside from everything is define the expectation. <laughs> I think you're totally right. And I think we could actually, I don't think that's why I would say he is not a musical terrorist because we're never getting to choose trauma. We're never getting, you know, he's not, he's not like traumatizing. I mean, I guess a lay person when they first hear Cage is like, oh, it's just a bunch of sounds. Oh my God, what am I supposed to do with that? But after you hear a lot of this type of music, you can get into it on the sense of appreciating the sound aesthetically. And I think you can get The will and willingness. Yeah, you can get there. But I also think that like, if you wanted to turn his music into an act of sonic terrorism, what you would have to do would be like, okay, I'm going to do 433, but what I'm actually doing is I'm going to like really heighten the anxiety of the audience like i'll have 40 speakers set up and they're all going to be turned on at high mass so you just go in and you hear as if a sound is about to jump in and then you only hear air air raid sirens from outside the door (laughs) you know like i think at that point you've reached level of sonic terrorism (laughs) your visual cues that something might happen then it doesn't yeah, and it's like a theater piece, like two people hug on stage, and there's just the sounds of worms, like, giving birth or something. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm sorry, not, my music does not do this a lot, although I've, I am working on a piece called Abjection, Powers of Horror, and it does do some of that, but I would definitely do, like, trigger warnings for the audience, because you just don't, I don't want to be mean, you know, I want to give, like, a horror experience to people who want to have it, I don't want to give a horror experience to people who don't want to have it. You know, like <laughs> question for you with relations yeah. on stuff when it comes to like horror sounds, and this maybe kind of a chicken and the egg scenario here. Yeah. Do we use horror sounds because they were scary, or have we just associated those sounds with scary things for so long? So one we should probably do on this show is the I think it's the preface to Zizek's The Parallax View which begins with 
and I'm going to butcher this, so we'll look it up. And uh, don't take me at my word. Read the book, people listening. But um, basically, a modern artist, I forget who it was, who was part of either Dadaism or Surrealism or one of those, you know, uh, experimental early 20th century uh, art forms was recruited to build a torture chamber for the government using modern art. And so, like, the rooms had all different sizes that you couldn't sleep in. And and so I think <laughs> I think that so H H Holmes without the murder yeah yeah it's like staircases <laughs> that go nowhere yeah but they're there to like get the person to talk right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anybody who's familiar they'll be like oh my god oh my god modern H H Holmes or, or, or but like instead an art it's just a like... long discussion yeah. at the end instead of a gas chamber. And it's like, everyone in here has cracked. We have found the location of the rebel base. <laughs> Except for John. John doesn't crack. Oh, well, he was an art critic. <laughs> He's just licking the walls for some reason. <laughs> He's just saying, oh, the tactileness of his choice of material. Fascinating. Oh, excellent choice. Excellent. And he goes like, oh my god, I can't get comfortable in this room. How joyful of an art experience. He's been in the uncomfortable room for like a day now. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've never been so uncomfortable in my life. What an experience. He's like journaling and he says like, the event is not over yet. Seems a little drawn out for my taste. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and obviously Cage would really not like anything we're saying right now. For a lot of reasons, right? But like... Well, it's I, 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 it's there though. I don't know. It's, it's, well, it's I mean, a problem. That's what we're here for. We're here to have yeah. fun with this stuff, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's all I. That's all I got from it. I, I thought it was nice. I, I, I thought it was maddening at points. I mean, um, it was fun one way or another. Yeah. It was certainly spawned a lot of good conversation, which I think you know if that was. Cage's goal. Mm -hmm. Maybe he didn't give a shit about like his actual music, and he just wanted to restructure the way we think about it. I mean, the dude creates some good conversations in music theory classes. There are some people that are very upset that John Cage gets the respect he does. Yeah, and I always find that to be... Um, people who just don't know a lot about new music. Mm. You know, he's so important. And or the New York people school who just as a whole. disregard new music yeah. as a thing. Yeah, know? because, and I would say, like, obviously, John Cage does care about his music. Um, there was, uh, I forget if this was Miguel Chiwaki, but another composer I worked with was at a seminar somewhere, and Cage was visiting, and everyone was looking into a classroom because he was like, I need an hour alone or something like that. And what do you think Cage would been was doing with his time? No, he wasn't sitting staring at the wall. He was flipping dice. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, he's does he's anybody serious. have a Yahtzee cup? Here? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Cage would have fucking loved Magic the Gathering, <laughs> or like you know, I ordered one of those dice packets. Like one of them's a fifty-sided dice. Like God, he would have loved that. Oh man, Ram random number generators. Did, All sorts of great stuff. Did he and Philip K. Dick ever cross paths? I don't know. Because, like, I mean, when he got to, like, the I Ching stuff, the first thing I was like, oh, shit, that's how a lot of Man in the High Castle was written. 
That's so cool. Was he, uh, like, the ending especially was all done through the I Ching. And he references it a lot in the story, too. It's, uh, he's one of my favorites. That's beautiful. We should maybe read that at some point. It's, it is, it's a cool read. And, like, when you learn that after the fact, because I didn't know that when I read it, and then after when you're learning, you're like, oh, Makes a lot of things line up, like make mm. a lot of sense that didn't before. But yeah, he did a lot of that stuff through, uh, you know, random chance telling him what he should go with. On a on a formal level, though, not like on the language choice. No, it was like where the story would go. So that's on the formal level. There's schools of poetry, um, one called Alipo, that would, or R plus seven where you know you go to a dictionary and you find the seventh adjective past a word and you construct it in a what we would call mad libs <laughs> way really? yeah there's a lot of chance operations again this was in the air you know this type of work that cage is talking about was really in the air from the late 50s through the 60s now now it's like if you do that you're considered sort of like passe you know, like, it's a little like, oh, oh, well, you're doing the chance operations. Oh, okay. <laughs> I also kind of like the idea of, like, the chance operations destroying this notion that, like, great artists are... They were born to be gifted inspiration from God. Oh, and yeah. that is where their music came from. Yeah. They were a mouthpiece of a higher power. <laughs> yeah. Blessing us with their great godly sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's toxic anybody actually trying yeah. to write music and cage gets you in a great way really past that um there but that climaxes in a really i haven't seen the whole movie because i just i just can't watch it but you know the movie august rush oh god where the, he goes and plays like really simple chords on an organ and they're like it's magic he's a demon or something if i remember <laughs> right and it's like yeah he's just like playing chords that any kid that age could play with like one day of piano it's lessons but because it's the instrument choice and the venue it's viewed as the divine inspiration mm-hmm. and, and anything like that is um you know and i'm not saying i'm not on the side of divine inspiration i think that that i would actually be on the side that you know you can't pin creativity down to your ego even in works that we would consider are very ego-laden, like 19th century romanticism. But I think that for the students seeing Cage, it would be really helpful to get them out of that crippling self-doubt. When will that know? light shine upon me when I'm writing music? It Never. That's not how it works. You just keep doing it, and good shit happens sometimes. Like I, I yeah. think it's often more about the grind than the god. Well, isn't it... Okay, so for me, and again, I'm not attaching positive or negative qualities to my music, but when I feel that I really did something, it's always retroactive. Mm. Like, I did something that I thought really meant something to me artistically after the fact. And then I can have the confidence to go do it again because, like, Harry Potter 3, like, I already did it. But it wasn't really in the flow state me. Just as I'm assuming when you play a great solo, you go, that was a great solo. I did really well. You're not sitting there going, God, this is oh, fucking I'm great. nailing it right Nailing now, that solo, man. No, like, that, that is very much a, like, when you're in the zone, it's like meditation, I think. Mm-hmm. It's acknowledgement of it would break the flow. Like, when you're... I mean, I can't imagine 
many composers that like when they had like, oh, this is the next one. This is the next banger, baby. I'm killing it right now. <laughs> well, it's it's funny when people get close to that. So Beethoven had this really terrible battle piece, which is a common 19th century type of piece, which is usually like an overture or a tone poem uh, called uh, like Wellington's Victory. And it's, um, to me, one of the worst pieces of music ever written by, by anyone. <laughs> and it, it, it's like really bad. And it's, it's just really... It's so like the it's almost the room in music like you have these fanfares and they just oh, go oh, on Mark. oh yeah it's very like and it's like is this ever gonna stop and then it'll stop it's like really bad and and then I think if I remember right again don't quote me we have to look it up someone said you know like something on the lines of what gives and he said if I remember right. Anything I shit out, shit out will be better than anything you could do. <laughs> but he was wrong. It's a horrible piece. Like it's like, it's like like I think that I think that the message, the lesson to be learned is that no, the our conception of Beethoven had nothing to do with the the piece Wellington's victory. <laughs> oh man. So I mean, I think I think like I like that about Cage. I like he gets us away from the ego. I just think that like in in psychoanalysis and other aspects of continental theory and other realms of creativity, um, there's there's always a sense of, of of unburdening the ego. Of of you know, Lacan says the ego is strong enough. Like we don't need to make the ego stronger. Mm. We need to make the symbolic dimension aware of itself in a way. We need we need something more than just killing the ego and i think cage in his music and work does that i just think sometimes in his words he's a little coy about it mm. that's a good way to put it i like it though it was it was fun though i enjoyed that read yeah last question why is it in this book well you see our relationship to money has really become problematic in later eras. Yeah. And we need to just think of, what's a penny besides money? Can I appreciate a dollar bill for just being a dollar bill? The non-relational penny. <laughs> the non-relational penny. That's our, that's our first album we'll write together. <laughs> Oh, that's good though. I, uh, I liked it. All right. That was a good one. All righty. Well, next time. All right. Next time, tune in. We will be doing, um, for something completely different, we will be doing a know, uh, short. For something completely different. Yeah. A short work of Mark Fisher. Um, so if we were focusing on some rather positive aspects of being, so to speak, using words a little violently, we will be not focusing on that next time. <laughs>